0: Open your Bible, please. Proverbs 14. The book of Proverbs, chapter 14. Proverbs 14. Stand with me as we read God's Word, please. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 34. Just one verse. Why don't we all read it aloud together. Join me, please. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Again, righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach. To any people And you may be seated, please It was July the 4th, 1776 Exactly 240 years ago tomorrow The 13 colonies had declared their independence From Great Britain And two years before They had already met In what was then called The First Continental Congress They had met in 1774 to seek a redress of their grievances against the English king and parliament and country. They had protested the heavy taxation that they were paying. This led to, among other things, the Boston Tea Party, of which you're familiar. The thing that they most resented is that they were being heavily taxed without any representation in the British Parliament. They had no voice. The laws would just come down, and they would have to pay the taxes. There are many other abuses that they were suffering that had made America rebel against Great Britain, and rightfully so in this case. Those abuses are listed in the Declaration of Independence, and I don't want you to go and get interested in it and start reading it, but it has page after page there about page 7, 8, and 9 of the reasons that the United States wanted to declare independence from Great Britain. And those were not petty grievances. Those were real reasons they were being abused by England in a great way. And they're enumerated here in the Declaration. Thomas Jefferson was known among the Founding Fathers, as the one who had the greatest writing ability. So they asked him if he would pen a Declaration of Independence from Great Britain. He wrote the first draft by himself, and then he brought it before the assembly, the Second Continental Congress, it was called. And in it he detailed, as you can see there in your copy, the grievances against the English king and the English parliament. The other members of the committee read the declaration, offered their suggestions. It was polished. Some words were deleted. Others were added in some places. They softened it. In other places, they made it stronger. And finally, the finished product was presented. King George, the king of England, knew the plan. He knew about it. And he had sent word to those delegates If you sign this, you're signing your death warrant. You will be hung for treason if you sign that document. And as each man stepped forward that day to sign his name, he understood the consequences. And it was not as if they had nothing to lose because most of them were wealthy, wealthy people. John Hancock, for example, whose signature is most prominent. John Hancock was the wealthiest man in Boston, Massachusetts. He stepped forward and signed it in large letters. He said, I want the king to be able to read this without his spectacles on. And so they stood up there in a very heroic line and signed their names to that document. Most of them, if you read the history of what happened to them, lost everything that they had or virtually everything that they possessed on this earth. Several of them died for signing that document. They were caught by the British and executed or died from deprivation, starvation, whatever in the war. Just eight days after they signed the Declaration of Independence on July the 12th, they presented another document. It was called the Articles of Confederation. That would serve as a temporary constitution until a permanent constitution would be able to be enacted two years later, or pardon me, 11 years later. And those 11 years went by, and then they met again, the third Constitutional Congress or convention. They met in the summer of 1787. They came together in May. They didn't leave Philadelphia until September. They spent over 100 days working on the document. And I submit to you this morning that the document that you hold in your hand here next to your Bible is the most remarkable document that was ever penned by human beings. This is absolutely not divinely inspired as your Bible is, but next to your Bible, it is the most remarkable of human documents. It was influenced heavily by the Scriptures themselves more than people know today, or more than many people who know it are even willing to admit. In a study that was done for a doctrinal thesis of the political literature that was being written at that time, an author noted that 34% of the references cited in all the political literature, not just the Constitution and Declaration of Independence, but he was looking at hundreds and hundreds of documents at that period of time that were written on political themes. And he said, in all of those documents, if you take all of the references and all of the footnotes that are in those documents, that 34% of all citations were from the Bible. Now that's amazing because the next person who influenced the writers during that time was Mont- Montesquieu, the French political writer and theorist, but he's only cited 8% of the time compared to the Bible's 34%. And then you have Blackstone, 7%, and John Locke tied with him, and then it goes down from there. So when you consider that it take all the political literature that period of time, that of the citations and footnotes and references, 34% of them, one out of th- more than one out of three, came from the Scripture itself. James Madison, the fourth president, one of the 55 signers that day said, we have staked the whole future of American civilization, not upon the power of government, far from it. We have staked the future of all our political institutions upon the capacity of each and every one of us to govern ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. In fact, in the original colonies, the 13 colonies, 12 of them at the time the Constitution was passed into law had incorporated the entire Ten Commandments into their civil and criminal codes. And so the Bible was the, most, the greatest single influence unquestionably and hands down on all political literature at that time, and especially upon our Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. Now, the reason for that was that our founders had a biblical worldview. And we're using that term a lot right now because we feel it essential to teach that term and that this church have an understanding of that term. Our worldview is the way we look at life. In fact, it's the, it's the glasses through which we interpret all of life. And when I mention the term a, a biblical worldview, I mean that you look at all of life, not just when you're at church, but you look at our economy, you look at politics, you look at government, you look at entertainment, you look at, Uh, The media, you look at family, you take every single area in which we're involved in life and you interpret it through what the Bible teaches, the philosophy of the scripture. And our founders had that biblical worldview. Were all of them born again Christians as you and I know it to be? No, they were not. Some of them were deistic in their philosophy and so on. Others of them, though, had a deep and profound faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, among them John Adams and several others. But here's my point. These men looked at life and interpreted life, especially political life and government, through the lens of the Scripture. They understood good government to be what? the Scripture would teach good government to be. They believed, for example, that man was created of God. They didn't talk about evolution. They talked about our Creator, and they mentioned Him numerous times. They believed, in fact, that man had a fallen nature that he had sinned and was in need of redemption, and that at his core he was broken, and that man couldn't fix himself. And out of that belief in the depravity of humanity, these men distrusted giving too much power into the hands of anyone because they believed that every human being was a fallen being and that if we gave them too much power, they could turn and use it against us in some tyrannical fashion. And so these men, having lived under a tyrant and lived under... Tyranny, having lived under tyranny, they yearned for liberty. And they were distrustful of big government. Everything that they were doing was to have the least amount of government possible. Oh, that today people would think like that again. They did not want government's heavy hand. They would rather do without some comforts of life than they would, and maintain their freedom than they would to have comfort and convenience but be restricted in their, in their freedoms. And so they yearn for liberty. And it's my belief that if we didn't have a constitution, we couldn't write the constitution today. It couldn't be written. And the reason it couldn't be written is because we don't have people in leadership who think biblically. They don't have a biblical worldview. They believe in evolution. That takes that off the, the, the table immediately. But not only do people today not believe that God is their creator, they don't believe that man has fallen. And we have more reason to believe that man has fallen than ever before in history. But many of our people are romantics. They're idealistic They believe that man is essentially good, that the problem is a lack of education or the problem is poverty or the problem is society and environment. And so we couldn't write the Constitution if we needed one today because our view of man is so radically different from the Founding Fathers. The Constitution is absolutely unique. It's unique in this sense. It gave the ultimate power to govern not to any person, no king or prime minister or potentate. It gave the power to govern not to a group, a political party. It gave the power to government, to govern not to some institution of man. It put the political power in a document in this, the Constitution. This was to be the ultimate power to settle all the questions. You take people out of it, institutions out of it, philosophy out of it. This simple document that was passed into law was to be the standard of government. And everything in it was to protect liberty and the freedom of the individual. And so for the first time in all of history, there was a nation that arose whose ultimate power was not a party or a man, or an institution. It was a document, the Constitution of the United States. Don't you think today we need a revival of constitutionalism in this country? Don't you think that in America today we need to fall in love again with this wonderful thing that's given us 240 years of freedom? The principles of this were drawn from the Scripture. Open your Bible the book of Isaiah And this is one to me Of one of the beloved passages Of the entire book of Isaiah And one that I've referenced frequently here Today I'd like for you to turn to it And look at it And mark it in your Bible Because this is the philosophy That these men had The world view of the founding fathers Isaiah chapter 33 Isaiah chapter 33 Who Would think you could find the greatest principle hidden in our Constitution that made it more unique than any other any other governing document in human history. Who would think you would have found it buried deep in a book of the Bible in a prophet, an ancient prophet, Isaiah, chapter thirty-three, verse twenty-two. For the Lord is our judge; the Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Look at the verse again. The Lord is our judge. And so these men said, and that which makes our constitution so unique, we will separate the powers. We don't trust fallen men to have power. So we will separate the power." And there will be a judiciary of judges who will interpret and rule upon whether the law conforms to the Constitution. God, the Lord, is our judge. There's the judiciary. The Lord is our lawgiver. And so they said we need a legislature who will pass the laws and make them. And then the Lord is our king, an executive, a leader we call him president. They wanted to call George Washington king, and he refused. He said, oh, no, 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 never. And so they chose the term president rather than king. But it represents the same office as a king would hold, the executive office. And so we have the legislature who makes the law. The judiciary who interprets the law, but interprets the law not according to their personal preferences, but in conformity to the Constitution. And then the president who executes the law and sees that the law is in fact carried out, who has executive power. That makes our Constitution unique. That makes America unique. Now, many nations have copied that since, but at that time, there was not a single nation in the world or ever in history that had a judiciary, a legislature, and an executive that operated under a set of laws passed by the people, for the people, and of the people that guaranteed them freedom from tyranny. This is the first time. And America was unique. And boy, I see the hand of God all over this thing. The secular left today, the secularists are trying to take from us our Christian history. But the hand of God is in the Constitution. Now, the words God may not be in the Constitution. They certainly are in the Declaration of Independence But the spirit of the Bible is all over the Constitution and all of those early documents. And so the secular left today in America, right now, basically represented by the Democrat Party in the United States. That's not a political statement. Uh, To to get you to vote in a certain way It is a reality that they are left And the Republicans are a little bit right of them Not enough But the, the reality is That the left in this country Is doing everything it can To rob us of the Christian heritage And in Charlotte When that party met last time They booed the very mention of the word God That's how far we've come down the road from where our founders were. And these leftists today want us to focus on the unbelief or some statement that was made by one of these founding fathers. To do so, I have to ignore all these phrases. When you go home, and I, and I pray that you will take an hour for the sake of the country and the sake of your children and grandchildren, that you'll read the Declaration, that you'll read the Constitution. M- many Americans, most Americans have never even read it one time in their whole life. If you read the Declaration of Independence, here's what you will find. Phrases like, the law, the laws of nature and nature's God. Tell me how you can say we weren't founded upon Christian principles. We are endowed by our Creator. There is a recognition of God. They even spell it with a capital C. The protection of divine providence in the Declaration of Independence. Three times in the Declaration of Independence, and it's a short document, it speaks of of God, of the existence of, of God, the Creator God. And... Eleven years later, when they, met, when they met at the Constitutional Convention to write the Constitution, they had been there all summer and the whole process had broken down. The convention was hopelessly deadlocked and a complete impasse. They were divided up over the authority they would give to the president to proportionate representation in the states. How many representatives would each state have? What would it be based on? They were divided over states' rights. And the biggest one of all, they were divided over slavery. And the whole process was breaking down. And for four or five weeks, they had made no progress. They just argued, and they were, they were becoming very divided. And the oldest delegate to that convention... 81-year-old Benjamin Franklin stood and addressed the president of the convention. I think that was George Washington that they'd elected even to do that. Here is his words in the speech. It's quite lengthy. I quote from it, but please listen to me and hear it. I want you to absorb this. Quote, Mr. President, the small progress we have made after four or five weeks close attention and continual reasoning with each other is... Methinks a melancholy proof of the imperfection of human understanding, fallen man. We indeed feel our own lack of political wisdom. We have gone back to ancient history for models of government and examined the different forms of those republics, which having been formed with the seeds of their own dissolution, now no longer exist. And we have viewed modern states all around Europe But we find none of their constitutions suitable to our circumstances. In this situation, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understandings? In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of our danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection— Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And to that kind providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace today on the means of establishing our national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. This is Benjamin Franklin, not known for being a devout Christian. The longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of the truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain to build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interest. Our projects will be confounded. And we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. And what is worse? Mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance, despair of ever establishing governments by human wisdom and leave it up to chance, to war, or conquest. I therefore beg leave to move that our deliberations that are that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business and that one or more of the clergy of the city be requested to come and officiate in that service, end of quote. Eleven, I counted them references to God, the Father of lights, daily prayer divine protection, superintending providence, kind providence, our powerful friend. God governs in the affairs of men, sacred writings, except the Lord build the house. He is concurring aid, imploring the assistance of heaven, over and over like a drumbeat. He's talking about God, Christianity, Scripture, a biblical worldview. There's so many stories, I can't tell you all of them, of the hand of God in America's formation. We just sung the national anthem. Do you know the story? It was the War of 1812, a few years later. Francis Scott Key was a lawyer, and he stood watching the shelling of Fort McHenry over in Maryland by the British. All night long, the guns sounded. And in the morning, he looked through the smoke and there was the tattered flag, the stars and stripes still waving. And it spoke to his heart. He said he wept when he saw that flag. And he wrote these words, Oh, thus may it ever, when free men shall stand between their loved homes and the war's desolation, Blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation, and then conquer we must, for our cause it is just. And this be our motto, in God is our trust. The star-spangled banner in triumph shall wave, or the land of the free and the home of the brave. Don't tell me these men didn't worship the God of the Bible. Over and over and over it comes through that whole spirit. I call the message today the almost chosen people. The almost chosen people. Referring to American exceptionalism because they believed in American exceptionalism. From our very founding the leaders of this country believed it was special, that it was unique, that there had never been a nation like it and might not ever be another one like it again. They believed that God had a mission for America. John Winthrop was one of the pilgrim fathers who had landed in 1620. And he had become the governor of that little colony. And he believed and wrote about America's quote, holy calling, he referred to it. And he referred to America as the city on a hill. Now that came from the Lord Jesus Christ himself in Matthew 5, where he talked about a city on a hill cannot be hidden. And that we're to be lights like that city on the hill, exposed where people can see the light. The light he referred to, of course, was the Christian faith. James Madison said, and I quote, It is impossible for the man of past reflection not to perceive in the founding of this country a finger of that almighty hand which has been so frequently and signally extended to our relief in the critical stages of the, re- of the revolution. It's impossible not to be able to see the finger of God. That has occurred in the American Revolution, meaning the War of Independence, how God had sovereignly given them victory. Abraham Lincoln in 1861 was speaking to the New Jersey State Senate. Again, I read from a speech of Abraham Lincoln. Quote, I recollect thinking then, boy, even though I was, that there must have been something more common. That those men struggled for The national independence Something that held out A great promise to all the people Of the world for all time to come I am exceedingly anxious That this union The constitution And the liberties of the people Shall be perpetuated In accordance with the original idea For which that struggle was made And I shall be most happy Indeed if I shall be An humble instrument in the hands of the Almighty and of this His almost chosen people for perpetuating the object of our great struggle, end of quote. And that phrase that the president used, His almost chosen people, think of that. Lincoln was comparing... The people of America to Israel God's chosen people He was saying Right next to Israel In the plan of God Is America We're the almost Chosen people We have a special calling Yeah I know America's had its flaws And you do too We're reminded of them too frequently. Every time now you turn on the television and the left media is in control, they remind us of all of our sins and failings and mistakes because we're a fallen people. We never, nobody ever said America was perfect. Yes, slavery is a great, great blot on history. But I will quickly say that we were not the whole civilized world then was slaveholders. So, but we're picked out as being the, the awful ones. Yeah, our treatment of the Native Americans was, was unjust and unfair and bloody and awful and violent. Yes. America has not been perfect. Today, there's this abortion thing. Worse than any. And now, we have redefined the oldest institution in history, marriage. Yeah, America has sometimes acted wickedly. And in those chapters, I'm ashamed of America too. And so, I I don't want you to think I'm naive. I don't want us to be naive about America and close our eyes to its sins and wickedness because there's been much of it. But in recent years, especially since the Vietnam War, this self-loathing, apologizing for the country, you would think America is a bully going around bullying the rest of the world, a villain, that every problem in the world has been caused by America. America. If you listen to NBC, CBS, ABC, and that crowd, you'd think every problem in the world had been caused by America. That we were the only nation that created problems. Completely overlook what is happening in the Middle East with Islam. Completely overlook what happened for 70 years under communism. All that's never mentioned. It's just America that's the problem. A self-loathing. Our leadership going around apologizing for using our power. It's insane. It's lowered the morale of the country. There's a spirit of discouragement hanging over the country today like a fog. Because that's all we hear is how terrible we are. If we would just cool it a little bit, you know, the the lady with the Department of Justice the other day said, we just need to love those terrorists. We just need to love those terrorists. I define that as a form of uh, mental illness. (laughs) Incredible. We just need to love the terrorists and it'll work out. I want to tell you America has done more good than any nation in all the history of the world because of American ingenuity and liberty and the free enterprise system in the world America has led the world in inventions and technological development now what we've done for the world from Ben Franklin experimenting with his kite and electricity to Edison's electric light. I never quit thanking the Lord for electric lights. Without that, I'd have to watch television in the dark. (laughs) Praise God for the lights. From the Wright Brothers' airplane to Henry Ford's A-model automobile, the telephone, the radio, the television, the rockets to space, men on the moon... And the whole world has benefited. We've been willing to shed our blood to defend freedom. In 1801, the very first foreign conflict when Muslim pirates, Muslim terrorists we were plundering the ships off of the coast of North Africa. The U.S. Navy and Marines went over there and defeated them. And today we sing from the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli. The shores of Tripoli were where those pirates were operating. That was the first Muslim terrorist group, and they knew what to do about it. In the 1940s, Americans destroyed the Nazis. And Japanese imperialism In 1948 President Truman led in establishing The Jewish state of Israel Without America Israel humanly speaking Would not exist In the 1980s American power bankrupted the Soviet Union Ronald Reagan said I'm going to get them in an arms race And they can't afford to be in it And the wall came tumbling down And Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union were freed from that awful era. Not often do people mention our missionaries. They've taken the gospel from America to the four corners of the globe. And whenever there's a national disaster anywhere, a tsunami or an earthquake or whatever, a pestilence, it's American ships that load up. And take relief, humanitarian aid to every place in the world. You don't hear of anybody else doing much. America has done more good than any nation. But now turn back to my text with me for a moment. Because I want you to see the truth of that text. Righteousness exalteth a nation. And I believe America has illustrated that. I believe God blessed America because America was righteous. America was born in a revival. The Great Awakening was occurring in the 1730s and 40s. Jonathan Edwards was preaching in New England. George Whitefield was going up and down the coast, the East Coast, even preaching here in South Carolina. And the country was experiencing as the name implies, a great awakening, a tremendous spiritual revival. Tens of thousands of people were saved, swept into the kingdom of God, joined the churches, accepted the Christian religion, Christian morality, Christian values. And then after the country was founded, in 1790, just uh, four year, three years after the Constitution was drafted, Up until about 1820, for about 30 years, it was another revival swept America. The Christian religion, morality, values. Charles Finney and a host of great evangelists, Peter Cartwright, men like that went across this country. Churches were founded at every crossroads, little Sunday schools. America became a Christianized nation. Everybody wasn't saved, but the Judeo-Christian philosophy became the very foundation of American life. Our constitution was written by people with character, for people with character. And Ben Franklin wrote in a letter to the French, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt and full of vice, they have more need of masters, meaning they have to have more laws and more authority if they are not virtuous on their own. And John Adams wrote, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And Alexis de Tocqueville, the French nobleman and political philosopher, came and left and went back to France and wrote, America is great because America is good. But when America no longer is good, America will no longer be great. The rest of my text says sin is a reproach. Benjamin Franklin said we will become a reproach if we turn away from the path we're on. I looked up the word reproach to discredit, to disgrace, to bring disappointment. Righteousness exalted America, but sin has brought disgrace Discredit and disappointment. And today, perversion is celebrated. Did you watch the gay pride parades? A celebration of perversion. Reprobation is accepted as marriage. Many of our politicians are corrupt. Violence fills our streets. Drugs destroy the minds of thousands. Immorality is accepted as normal now. And this morning, the most dangerous place on the planet for an unborn child is in its mother's womb. Reproach. Does this statement shock you? America's greatest security threat today is not ISIS or Iran or China America's greatest security threat is almighty God because history records again that when nations reach a certain level of corruption that God's judgment falls be not deceived God is not mocked he doesn't pay off on friday he pays off in his own sovereign time but he never fails to pay god will not be mocked in luke 19:41 our lord rides into jerusalem just before his death i think one of the most poignant scenes in all the scripture Jesus standing on the Mount of Olives looking over to the city. I've stood in that very place and pictured that. And the Bible says he wept. Jesus wept as he looked at the city. And he said, if you knew what was going to happen to you, if you only knew, he didn't even finish the sentence. It's like he just broke up and sobbed. If you only knew what is coming. And 40 years later, Titus came down with his Roman legions. And only God knows how awful that was. A million Jews died. Not a tree left in miles that would support the weight of a man because they were all used to crucify somebody. Children's heads cracked open as the soldiers dashed their heads against the walls. It was awful. It was a bloodbath. And everybody that was survivors was carried away as slaves. Terrible saying. They wouldn't listen. They rejected him. What does, Amer- what does God see for America in the future. As he looks over our country, I wonder what he sees. Ben Franklin believed that among other things, the answer was prayer. Do you pray for the country? I mean, not saying prayers. Is your heart not heavy for the country today? Do you pray? Do you cry out to God with passion, with deep? genuine feeling that, oh, Lord, you're the only one who can save us. In the verse in Isaiah, it says, the Lord is our king, the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver. And then it says, and the Lord will save us. Not the government. The Lord. Not a political party. The Republicans are not going to save you conservatives are not going to save you. The Democrats are not going to save you. The Lord will save if we're to be saved. Would you stand to your feet with me, please, in prayer?